Welcome to The Bounce. I am Bob Lapine. I'm a pastor in Little Rock, Arkansas at Redeemer Community Church. I'm on the board of directors for the Great Commission Collective, and I hope by now you know all about GCC. The Great Commission Collective is a, a collective of churches who are committed to gospel-centered church planting in the United States, in Canada, and around the world. There's a lot more you can find out about the Great Commission Collective when you go to our website, which is gccollective.org. We've got an important subject to address today because it is likely that as you minister to your congregation week in and week out, there are men in your church who are behind closed doors being verbally or physically abusive in their marriage. What do we do with that as pastors? How do we address it? How do we become aware of it? We're going to have the opportunity today to hear what to do because Chris Moles joins us. Chris is a pastor. He's a biblical counselor. He has written a book called Caring for Families Caught in Domestic Abuse, A Guide Toward Protection, Refuge, and Hope. Chris has been working in this area for Uh, Many years has worked with hundreds of men involved with domestic violence and brings a gospel-rich perspective to this subject. Chris, I'm curious as we kick this off, um, how did this issue become a burning issue for you? Why is this so significant? Because this is something you devote a lot of writing time, a lot of thinking time. You're actively involved with this. How did that happen? Yeah, so I, I've been I've been intimately involved in domestic abuse ministry and work for uh, almost 18 years now, and it actually began as a part time job. So I was a church planter with the Christian and Missionary Alliance, and uh, really needed some cash. Like uh, we were a small <laughs> church, and um, Bivocational ministry is not that foreign to me, being in West Virginia. A lot of our pastors are bivocational. So I had the opportunity to teach in corrections, and I taught parenting and uh, life skills. And about four years into um, you know, part-time teaching for uh, the Day Reporting Center, I was approached about helping lead a batterer intervention program, and it was for men convicted of domestic violence crimes. I honestly, Bob, I said no like three times. And then they told me what they would pay me per hour. And I said, I think the Lord's calling me. So it was totally, (laughs) totally my greed. But honestly, it was God's providence because I don't think anything has shaped me more in ministry and life. I think I'm a better pastor and a better husband and a better neighbor because of the hours I've spent, quite frankly, with abusive men. It it had to be eye-opening for you. I mean, I'm, I'm looking out at my congregation every Sunday morning as I'm preaching. And if you said to me, do you think there's anybody out here who is being physically abusive to his spouse? I'd go, no, I know these people. These are great people. I can't imagine. I'm sure statistically, but it's just, it's hard to believe that that could be going on. And yet I've, I've got to be, I've got to be sober enough to recognize there are probably abusers sitting in my congregation every Sunday. Sure. I mean, statistically, we're talking about one in four um, that we know of women in their lifetime will be, are currently, or have been a victim of intimate partner violence. And we've also learned uh, through two studies that were done by the RAVE Project 10 years apart that there's no discernible difference between those numbers inside the church and outside the church. And so, 
I can even attest anecdotally as somebody who has spent a lot of time working cases in the church that I'm no longer shocked uh, at the pandemic level of uh, cases within the church of husbands in particular abusing their wives spiritually, emotionally, physically, and sexually. How does a pastor even become aware that something like this is happening? First of all, is there anything we can be doing proactively to try to uncover what may be happening? And then, and then secondly, when we, when we do become aware, how does that happen and what do we do? Let's start with the first. Is there anything we can be doing proactively yeah, to uncover I, domestic violence? I think maybe rather than uncovering, maybe we ought to do some preventative work. Okay. Um, I think even before that, Bob, maybe the first question is we have to understand whether or not the pastor is the one abusing, because wow. pastors are as susceptible as anybody. About a third of the men that I've worked with within the church structure, um, almost a third of them were were in or had recently been in vocational ministry. So we see that even with bully pastors and some of the the things that we're seeing in the church now that we need to understand that even those of us in leadership are susceptible or maybe even more so because power is such a big part of this and there's so much that can be abused. Time, time out, because if we're going there and somebody's listening and he's going, yeah. I'm about to turn this off because it's hitting too close to home because I got angry with my wife and I didn't touch her. And, and you know, guys will always put the qualifier. I I didn't do this and I didn't do that, but I, I put a hole in the wall with my fist or I oh. threw something across the room or whatever. Who does that pastor go to? Because if he raises his hand and said, I got an issue, he's got two issues now. How's he providing for his family? And yeah, so what's he do? And think about his wife. I mean, is she going to be willing to seek help? Because again, her livelihood yes. is at stake. So I hope you did stay tuned. I mean, if that is describing you, I hope you haven't turned this off in anger because I want you to get help. Like I want you to recognize that if you're willing to say, well, at least I didn't touch her or I didn't do this. That's what we call minimization. And it's one of the first red flags that you actually do have a problem. If you're willing to justify, rationalize behavior that you know, first of all, is sinful. Let's not even talk about abusive behavior, but you know that was sinful and you're willing to rationalize it because it wasn't, say, criminal, then that is a problem. And you should seek help at either your district level or with your bishop or your board if you're an independent church or maybe another local pastor that you can confide in to get the help that you actually need, not collusive help that's going to just buddy-buddy with you, but somebody's going to hold you accountable and maybe help you find a counselor or a group that can address uh, the heart of what's going on. I'm just thinking of a pastor who's listening and going, I'm not going to my board. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm afraid my board would just say, we're firing you. I, I'm going to tell another pastor in time. I mean, I, you have to have a trusted ally. Sure that you can go to. And, and that's hard to find. Listen, brothers, I say this all the time to men, better to choose humility today than be humiliated tomorrow. Hmm. Like, honestly, if the Lord's convicting you of the way you're treating your family, seek help before he calls the Nathan in your life, who's going to say, you are the man. And then I know what I'm going to tell your board it, because I love you. Home Depot's hiring. There's places that you can get a job. If you're going to be violent or aggressive, or intimidate your family, maybe this isn't for you. So really choose humility today. It's the best It's the best way for you to move forward. And fear really is going to keep you captive to the same behaviors and the same uh, fear that's being cultivated in your family. Okay. So if it's not me, mm -hmm. I'm okay. I, I don't get angry. I, I'm not minimizing. 
But as a pastor, I want to try to be preventive. What are the preventive steps I can take? I think education is always the biggest one. I I would say this is something I never learned in uh, seminary, Bible college. I mean, we talked about it some in seminary, but that was mostly because I was already actively involved in the work. So it's something that is a brand new to a lot of us. So educating yourself, having conversations is usually a great way to do that. Getting to know your local law enforcement, getting to know your community agencies, especially if you're a church planner. I know being a church planner myself, my involvement in corrections had nothing to do with my desire. I never wanted to be in corrections. I'm actually too Anabaptist in my theology to to do much with it. Like, like I turned down so many jobs because I was like, no, I can't do that. Um, But just getting engaged in the community allowed me to see all kinds of things, be involved in all kinds of trainings that otherwise I didn't even know exist. As a pastor, I was the unicorn often in a room because I was the only pastor that knew they were having a federal Lautenberg Act training that night, or they were having a predominant aggressor training. And, you know, I'm showing up to these things and getting CEUs from the state, and I'm the only pastor there. So what it did was open up gospel opportunities for me. Hmm. And and, I, and I, hopefully this doesn't come off as too prideful. I think it's just because I come from such a small place, working in corrections so long, and there were so few people who could do what I do. I had freedom to talk about the gospel a lot. Because what's hmm. the, what could they do? Fire me? And then who hmm. are they going to replace me with? There was nobody to replace me at that point. So it just was a freedom to be a pastor who loved a community. And it just so happened that God put me in rooms with violent men. So preventive education in the context of a local church, do I need to preach on domestic violence some Sunday or do I need to do a class? What do I do? I would educate myself first, like I said, before I would publicly say anything. Now, I think you should be making public statements from the pulpit. I think if a pastor stands in the pulpit and he says, we believe that all abuse is a violation of the image of God relationally, emotionally, physically, and it's a demonic distortion of the way God designed relationships. Really hard language like that. And we're going to stamp it out. We're going to root it out. We're going to stand with victims. We're going to oppose abusers. I think those are great statements. But if you don't have a ministry response ready to back that up, then I think you're going to be overwhelmed. Because when you present yourself as a trustworthy option for a victim, I believe you're going to open the floodgates of disclosure. And so you better be prepared. And so I would educate myself. Then I would want to educate my team. And then I want to connect with community resources or other Christian resources that could help me because no church, especially no church plant that I know of, can do everything. Nor should we do everything because we'll we'll have blind spots and probably miss a good bit. So if, if we have in our church decided that we're going to acknowledge that this is an issue. We're going to call it out for what it is. And we say to our folks, look, if this is a struggle, we we want to help you. We, we want to bring help in this situation. And then I, I'm going to get the phone calls. Mm-hmm. So I better be ready with the help that I'm going to provide that I just promised. I've talked to, and you have as well, enough women who have said, I went to the pastor. I went to the elders they dismissed it. Some of them told me, turn the other cheek, go back home, be submissive. Uh, can can we just deal with that head on and just say, th- this is not what we're called to do as shepherds of the sheep? Well, I think you've said it well, because what you've said is alluding to First Peter chapter 5, right? That uh, we are 
the shepherds under the chief shepherd. You're there to, to protect the flock. And Peter right. commends us as fellow elders. Ironically enough, Bob, 1 Peter 5 comes after 1 Peter 3, which is the passage that I hear most from victims who say, I went to my pastor, I went to my elders, they encouraged me to trust God, and then sent me back with the expectation of submitting to abuse. Like, that's a theological problem long before it's a submission problem. Because when she came to you for help, she did exactly what you were asking her to do. She was trusting God, just as Jesus trusts the guardian of his soul, according to chapter two. Chapter three, she's experiencing pain and suffering. She comes to you, chapter five, as a means of trusting God, and you send her out with zero help back into the same situation. I think that's a real indictment on us as pastors when we do that. Now, I'm not saying that we need to go bully the bully because that'll never work, but we do need to be thinking creatively of how we resist, how we overcome evil with good, and how we function protectively as shepherds when people are disclosing that they're being harmed. Okay, you've been around this for a while. Have you ever known a situation where a wife came and said, my husband is abusing me, and he wasn't, she was making this up to try to get him in trouble. Have you ever known that to be the facts of the case? In a church setting? Yeah. Not to that degree. I have in a criminal setting. I will say that false accusations, historically consistent to the studies that were done in Australia and the UK, historically are 3% or lower um, on sexual assault cases, and it's estimated that it's about the same in intimate partner violence cases. Anecdotally, I've seen it in the criminal system a few times, and each time the false accusation falls apart, it's really hard to maintain a false accusation in a claim like experiencing abuse. And so in the church setting, I've seen women in particular who have been traumatized and have not got all their facts in the exact order that a pastor wanted and have been accused of making a false accusation but with good investigative work, which a, a police officer, a friend of mine says this all the time, if a false accusation sustains the test of time, if it passes time, that's an investigator's problem, not a false accusation problem, because they are so hard to maintain. So in the church, I've seen deception related to trauma, to trust issues, uh, but not to the extent that I have in the criminal setting. And in the criminal setting, the cases I've seen very rarely last long. They're usually undermined pretty quickly. So the point is, if if a woman in your church comes to you and says, uh, in tears, my husband is abusive with me, we should probably have a default setting that says, this is probably true, right? Yeah, I do that with every counseling. Like It's funny to me, Bob, because I get asked this question quite a bit, and sometimes there's an assumption that with abuse, you have to be suspicious. And I'm like, I'm not suspicious. When someone comes to me for counseling and their presenting problem is anxiety, my first knee-jerk response is not, we'll see if you're anxious. I tend to believe them. I tend to pull the rope and then ask questions. Tell me more about your anxiety. When does it happen? When was the last time it happened? How often does it happen? And so if someone were to come disclose abuse, which is rarely, hey, pastor, my husband's abusing me. Most of the time, it's more nuanced than that. I'm going to pull the rope and listen and learn because I understand, I think, and I want my trainees to understand, I'm the dumbest person in the room at this point. I don't know what she's experiencing. I don't know what pressure she's under. And the Holy Spirit knows more than both of us. So I need a posture of learning, not reacting. 
So I'm trying to listen, learn, ask good questions, and develop an understanding in my mind uh, so that I can fortify my belief, not establish my belief. Because when a counselee comes in and they say, you know, I'm, I'm really sad, I tend to believe them. Or I'm really anxious, I tend to believe them. So we believe that this charge is there. We pulled the rope. We've found the supporting evidence. We, she's, and, and by the way, I'm saying she's because I don't know what the numbers are, but I'm thinking the greatest preponderance is men who are abusing women as opposed. I know there are cases where a wife will be physically violent with a man, but that's pretty rare, right? Yeah, 85% is the uh, criminal and civil threshold. 85% of criminal or civil abuse is committed by men. 95% of emergency room uh, related treatment for domestic abuse is women. So yeah, proportionately, it's uh, much higher. Women have, and listen, all the women on the uh, podcast can probably amen this. Women and wives have their own unique ways of sinning against their husband. Abuse is one of those things because power and control are so central to it. It's a little bit of a low-hanging fruit for men because we're created bigger, faster, stronger. We're often more respected in public settings and in positionally in the church, especially among us who are complementarian, it could be something that could theologically be abused that would allow us to exercise power. So just understand it's low-hanging fruit for us. And yeah, traditionally and historically and statistically, men are much more likely to commit these acts. If we've got this information from the wife, um, I'm thinking we need to be really careful about confronting the husband because that could create new violence. So what do we do with the information we've received? Sure. It kind of depends upon the extent of the information. So just for, for the sake of um, pastors who are listening, in most states, if, if there's a report of somebody who has physically or sexually assaulted a child or has physically or sexually assaulted or neglected a child or an elderly person or a disabled person, most of us are mandated reporters. That's a call that needs to be made to uh, local authorities, CPS, APS, DHHR, whatever acronym is suitable in your state. Now, domestic abuse is a little different. If you witness domestic violence, um, a husband, and I'm just, these are actual stories that I know, you know, a husband and a wife get into a conflict in the parking lot and he yanks her by the hair and, you know, drags her to the car. Okay, I'm going to call the authorities at that point because her safety is most assured by police intervention when I witness an act of violence. But when she comes to my office and discloses, say, you know, a decade of emotional, spiritual, or even occasional physical abuse or sexual coercion, I know in my mind that I really need her consent before I go to the authorities uh, for a couple of different reasons. One, she has agency. She's an adult. Um, she needs resources, not another person to control her. So I want to make sure I'm empowering her to make those decisions on her own. And then, you know, number two, I understand that what she's telling me may not be criminal, and therefore may not have a criminal justice response. Um, and then thirdly, I know that even if it is, that response may not be severe or may not be significant enough to warrant the report. So her safety is really dependent upon me learning, me knowing my reporting laws of my state, and then also seeking her advice to make sure we're partnering together so that we can do um, an intervention properly. And I think that's the second part of what you were alluding to, which is when do or do we actually confront the husband? And I think that's something that the church can do. But again, I want victim consent. I want her to have a safety plan in place. Uh, and then I want the freedom to, um, to engage him on a personal level. 
And I think the nuance there is something that we as pastors may need to refer some of that out, or we may need to really significantly pray, read, and seek some help before we do that type of intervention, uh, because it can definitely endanger us. It can, the church, it can certainly create all kinds of other problems depending upon the nature of the abuse. Where should a pastor go to put a plan like that in place? I'm thinking about stuff I've read from Justin Holcomb. He he mapped out a pretty good plan for that. Where do you recommend? Yeah, so Justin and Lindsay have a really good plan in um, in their book on domestic abuse. Uh, there's great safety plan information at Focus Ministries, the number one dot org. Uh, they've been around for almost 40 years helping victims. Uh, Call to Peace Ministries, uh, Clarity in Action. There's so many Christian ministries now. It's, it's just amazing to me how far we've come in 10 years. There's really good uh, biblical-based resources that can help you with simple things like safety planning. But really, your greatest ally might be your community-based advocates. And more than likely, they've not had a great experience with the church. So you might be spending some time on that preventative end, building relationships with them, going to the 5Ks or the candlelight vigils, um, you know, biding your time until you get asked to pray at an event or or whatever. But those community-based advocates know your courts, they know your law enforcement officers, they know where the shelter is located, they know the legal aid folks, and they know how to safety plan. So having those connections to those folks in your community are huge, huge assets. And we will have links to some of these ministries in the show notes so you can check that out uh, and get the help you need. I, I know, Chris, when I started looking into this a couple of decades ago, um, Everything I found in terms of dealing with domestic violence online uh, was starting with the premise, men are pigs. The undercurrent of feminism was so strong in it, and there was nothing spiritually engaging about any of it. Uh, What I'm hearing you say is we've made some progress here, and we brought some biblical thinking to bear on this. Sure. Yeah, and and I really want to applaud and thank the feminists as much as I struggled with some of the humanistic, feministic, critical theory that that really birthed the DV movement, uh, I learned a great deal. Uh, and I think we all owe a debt of gratitude to some of these folks who did the hard work in a secular environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there definitely was a need. And I'll, I'll give credit where it's due, even though you know I come from a certain theological stripe. Uh, people like Catherine Krager, who uh, used to be at Gordon-Conwell, and founded Peace and Safety in the Christian Home, and Marie Fortune, and Ron Clark, and Julie, and, and Bob Owens, and some of the folks that are more on the uh, left of me, yeah. really knocked the door down for us in a lot of ways to make it acceptable to talk about this. And um, Leslie Vernick become kind of the first evangelical uh, counselor that I know to really begin to speak from a more conservative perspective and that really allowed voices like mine and Darby's and Joy's um, and, and Sydney and Greg Wilson and Jeremy Pierre and Justin and Lindsay and all of these wonderful voices that are kind of in our tribe. And, and allowed that to the point, Bob, and this is where we have just embarrassment of riches. We've now surpassed in resources and networking what our brothers and sisters in peace and safety, and I'm so thankful for Posh and all the work that they did back in the day, but we have surpassed them in resources and networking mm-hmm. uh, in recent years to the point that we really are experiencing momentum and kind of at a tipping point for conservative evangelicals when it comes to this issue. That's great. I have heard over the years 
that this sin in the heart of a man is maybe the most stubbornly rooted sin. And to, to the point that I've had some people say, if a man is prone to domestic violence, apart from a miraculous work of God transforming his life, that's that's going to be a besetting sin that follows him throughout his life. Yeah. Is that an overstatement? It just depends on the man, if I if I may. I mean, I, I'm kind of with Paul Washer on this. I used to think I needed the Holy Spirit to to minister, but now I need the Holy Spirit to tie my shoes in the morning. Like I'm just, I'm more and more desperate every day. And I have heard that I'm a little less likely to to go the reprobate route for every abusive individual because I know that abuse escalates. And I've seen men who they've walked up the ladder, but not all the way. And they've really been able to see God's grace and mercy and the courage of their wife who was willing to hold them accountable and seek help properly. And I've seen just some incredible redemption stories. However, to your point, when you're dealing with an individual, because abuse is not just corrupt behavior. It's not just behavior. It's also choices. And it's not just choices. It's also beliefs. So it's corrupt behavior and corrupt perception. There's a, a huge worldview problem. How I see God, how I see myself how I see other people. And so when a person has engaged in this type of worldview uh, and self-deception for a long, long time, I wouldn't say impossible because the gospel is uh, for all of us. All things are possible, right? Exactly. But I would say I'm not going to spend all of my time or energy for a person who doesn't want the gospel. So there are plenty of rich young ruler moments where you give the information that's needed. We're like the idiot farmer. We're just sowing seed every which away. And sometimes you're going to hit some real rocky soil. And at that point, when you experience obstinate after obstinance, I think it's okay to say, I'm going to focus all of my attention on your wife. And, you know, I wish you well. I hope you experience the saving power of Jesus because right now you do not live like a believer. I think it's okay to speed that up and actually come to that conclusion a little quicker than we have been. I remember reading something from the Nashville Police Department years ago, and they coined the the phrase that stuck with me. They called it the "oh baby" syndrome. Maybe you've heard of this, but they say typically, not long, sometimes minutes after the abuse has occurred, the abuser is weeping, crying. Oh baby, I'm so sorry. Oh baby, I'm going to start going to church. I'm going to start doing this, and starting to make promises that the abuse victim is longing to believe and wants to be true to the point that against her own better judgment, she will hope that it's good. And you know what? For the next three weeks, it is. Yeah. But it always comes back. I say always. Without without gospel help, yes, it's going to come back. Yeah. I would say without an intervention, that, that old fruit's going to return. We joke about you know, the fruit of abuse, we can rip all the apples off the apple tree and staple bananas in their place, but it doesn't make us a banana tree. Something's got to be uprooted. And it's that heart of violence, which I would call a heart of pride, entitlement. It's got to be replaced with the mind of Christ. We use Philippians 2 at that point to really contradict, contrast who we are in our worldview versus who Christ was in his, how we use power versus how he used power, and to really call people to repentance, to change. And that change has to happen at the level of the heart, or I don't think it's going to happen. We're just, 
in that regard, Bob, I think we're creating polite abusers who commit more respectable sins. I want to ask you about emotional abuse. And here I'll just I'll, I'll say that if our default position with a wife coming and saying, my husband is abusing me physically, should be to believe her. I'm a little less likely to believe the wife who is talking about emotional abuse because sometimes what she's describing as emotional abuse is garden variety sin and it's her own trauma that is blowing that out of proportion. That's where learning is a big part of this and asking good questions. I would also say, you know, for me, I I use those terms, emotional abuse, spiritual abuse, psychological abuse, because it helps us understand how someone's being treated poorly. But abuse is the blanket. Abuse is the use of power to coercively control one's partner. I'll give you an example. So I have some friends who, they don't like the term emotional abuse. They want me to remove it from my vocabulary. But I'll say something like, okay, so I've had several guys in the past who threaten suicide as a means of controlling their partner. How else do I describe that? What are they abusing if not her love for him? That, and like, there's definitely ways in which threats and looks and gestures and habits and even language that only between couples is negatively affecting someone. Even the old baby description a little bit ago would probably be classified in our world as gaslighting or crazy making because it's this this repetitive um, questioning of oneself. Is he really that bad? Is he really treating me that poorly? Well, he seems so. Even that is using my power, right, to add that layer upon layer. The difficulty with emotional abuse, obviously, is the descriptors, how you describe it. Um, it's also the significance. And so one of the things I like to tell folks I train, uh, my friend Leslie says, one bee sting will hurt you, a thousand bee stings will kill you. Mm-hmm. So when I think about a, a husband who's continually ridiculing his wife, I want to learn those lessons. I also want to learn how it affects her. And then I want to know whether or not he is aware of that. Um, and once I learn that most of the time the guys I work with are aware of that, and I've actually had guys say to me, well, I don't want to physically assault anybody. That'll get me in trouble. I can get what I want by calling her these names. By referring to her ethnicity, referring to her cultural background, to the geography from which she came, to her family, and I can get what I want that way. When you get a real honest conversation with an abusive individual, those emotional abuse suspicions start to go away because you're like, man, that that is so much more wicked than the Mm -hmm. physical stuff. Have you developed the radar now? Can you talk to a couple and start to go, I think there may be abuse going on here? You know, early on in the work, I really had to check myself because I was so afraid I was going to miss it that I wanted to see it. And um, now I tell folks, I think once you've seen it, it's hard to unsee it. It's like back in the day when they used to train bank tellers by you just handle real money over and over and over and over and over and over and over. When they expose counterfeit money, you just know. You can't tell why, but you just know. And I think if you work enough abuse cases, you start to get that that radar, as you say, uh, but you don't want to throw out accusations. You just want to learn. And so most of the time, it's an intriguing aspect of their language or how they respond um, to certain things, how you witness them in certain ways. And so asking good questions is going to help clarify that. And I find personally, talking to the potential abusers actually gives me more data than getting the story from the victim. That's why I like to use advocates because advocates can take the 10,000 words that a victim often traumatized is trying to communicate and really narrow it down to about five or six bullet points that I can comprehend. 
Whereas with an abuser, you're often um, dealing with kind of this dance of manipulation. And I'm a little bit more comfortable uh, with attempts to manipulate me as opposed to than I am to try to decipher all the all the stuff. I don't know if that makes sense, but it's a little easier for me to get data from a manipulative person than it is from a traumatized person. I've been told, and and tell me if this is your experience as well, that abusers are often the last people we would expect to be abusers, that they are generally charming, generally uh, likable, sure. that you think he, he couldn't be an abuser. He's such a great guy. Is that right? Yeah, sure. With the exception of like sociopaths or Right. People who are antisocial, you know, folks like that. I mean, absolutely. And I'll even say this. I've worked with thousands of men. I mean, literally, I've been doing this, you know, I, I taught classes several times a day, every week, uh, one day a week, plus all the work I've done in the church. Um, I've liked most of the guys that I've worked with. I think they would even tell you that we had a really good rapport. Um, it was, we had fun, believe it or not. I used to get reprimanded for being too jovial with guys. But my job wasn't to be punitive. I wasn't there to punish guys, whether it was in the criminal setting or the church setting. I was there to protect their spouse. And one of the best ways I could do that was to get to know them, to build involvement, um, and to hold them accountable. And so in order to do that, you kind of have to have a bit of a rapport where, yeah, Chris is going to say really hard things. He's going to ask really hard questions, and he doesn't budge, but he's fair, Mm. and he's trustworthy. And that was kind of our MO in the class. It was like, yeah, I mean, these guys are hilarious sometimes, uh, very, very likable. But at the same time, they've done some pretty dramatic, wicked things um, to one individual person. Sometimes they abuse their children. Sometimes they abuse their employees. Most of the time, these guys have a target. And so they don't really want to abuse me um, unless they find that they can't get what they want from me any other way. So right. most of the guys, we had a very good relationship that just that just focused in on why are you so intent on controlling your partner? Most abusers were themselves abused growing up. Is that true? Criminally, yes. So, and, and I want to caveat that because I can't say for sure they were abused. Um, in the criminal system, so men who are convicted of domestic violence crimes are the ones that are kind of, um, we have the most research on. And to be convicted criminally, by that point, most of the guys have participated in this for a long time. So keep that in mind. But among the uh, criminally charged men who are in classes for this, sentenced to groups, uh, 60 to 70% of them had what's called a high ACEs score. So they had a high adverse childhood experience score. So the majority of them, uh, ironically, it was much higher when they disclosed in public. It was lower in private. So it indicated that they felt like that if they disclosed, that that would give them some kind of cred. So actually, some guys were using trauma as a manipulative tactic. But in the private setting, we found it was about 60% or more, 60 to 70%, meaning that they probably experienced more trauma than, than I know I did. I have a very low ACEs score. And it's contributive, although not causative. So we can't say, because there's traumatized right. people who are not abusive. I would say it's kind of like walking in the woods. If somebody's walked there several times, you're probably going to walk on that path. That path is a lot easier to walk than blazing your own trail. And trauma is kind of like that. It establishes a well-established path that you can follow. And oftentimes people who are abused will turn to that. Although I will say many of the guys I've worked with have chose different forms of violating their partners because they'll say to me, Chris, I swore I wasn't going to be like my dad and I turned out just like him. And what they mean is, you know, they didn't use the same tactics that he did 
but they didn't address the heart. And they ended up being just like him in different ways. It was a couple of years ago, uh, I think at the Evangelical Theological Society, that Wayne Grudem presented a paper where he said, I have changed my mind on a theological issue. I used to think that abuse was not grounds for divorce. He said, as I've studied this textually, exegetically, I've come to a different conclusion. Well, so where are where, where do you land on this issue? So I was where I was where Dr. Grudem was before he was there, but for different reasons. And I'm not going to put myself up against Wayne Grudem. <laughs> I'm definitely not a theologian. I think the text of First Corinthians seven is pretty clear as you read it. I didn't need the the Greek underpinning that Dr. Uh-huh. Grudem developed because as I read it and then I looked at passages like Exodus 31, I just saw so many parallels to this idea of abandonment relating to the Old Testament concept of neglect and how somebody can live. And then also I, I had a pragmatic reality. I had a, a, a experiential reality that Dr. Gruden didn't, which was I saw many Christian women who were living in the same house with a man who had stepped out of the covenant a long time ago and their church would do nothing because he was physically present. Well, of course he was physically present. I mean, that benefited him the most to be physically present, even though he was absent the covenant. And I would talk to churches about this idea of, well, you know, there are men who are in the covenant and out of the house. They're in the military or they're on a long-term business trip. Like we don't think anything about that. There are men that are in the covenant and in the house. That's what we want. But this guy has done everything to abandon the covenant, but he remains present. And so you won't do anything because he hasn't deserted. And Mm -hmm. that was my struggle, you know, theologically and scripturally. And so when Dr. Grudem came out, it was a different take than what I had. Um, I I didn't really see it, to be honest with you, but I'm not a theologian. I didn't connect the same dots. But it was nice that he was thinking about it. And I think, quite honestly, Bob, for some folks, I think there was a real tribe of our brothers and sisters that needed someone like Dr. Grudem to connect those dots because they knew, they believed what I believed from just reading the scripture and interacting with people, but they didn't have the theological dots connected. And so when Dr. Grudem came out and connected those dots, they were a little bit more quick to jump. And so I'm thankful. I'm thankful for it. Uh, And certainly I'm not going to go toe-to-toe with Dr. Grudem on theology. (laughs) So last question, if there's been a a situation in your church, you've found out about something, you've met with the wife, you've had the chance to meet with the husband, and in meeting with him, what you've experienced leads you to have a lot of hope. He appeared broken. He was weeping. I want to be a godly man. I'll do whatever, whatever it takes. I'll start meeting with you, whatever I'm going to do. Um. We should leave that meeting with hope that is tempered with the reality that it is likely that guy is going to get two or three weeks down the road and go, yeah, I I don't want to do this anymore, right? Yeah, Yeah. what's the old phrase, trust but verify? That's right, yeah. There's a a reality here where I love initial repentance. That's what we call it at PeaceWorks is initial repentance, that, that evidence of awareness, in the thread, and I think Greg Wilson does a great job with this, he says, seeing, owning, hating, and turning. Those are the progressions. Mm. I think when a man sees his sin and even begins to own his sin, I think we've got a tremendous amount of hope. 
Now, the problem is many of our brothers and sisters have called that repentance. And that's really just confession and the initial stages of repentance. Maybe worldly sorrow, right? Exactly. So 2 Corinthians 7 is where I was getting ready to go. That's my rubric for understanding what earnestness, what indignation for your sin, what zeal. So I really want to see the watts of repentance played out in his life. And then I will tell him or walk him through Ephesians chapter four. Uh, when is a liar no longer a liar? Well, it's when he's a truther. And the passage actually has that interesting little tweak. You've got to be known as somebody who tells the truth. So it's not just, all right, I've been lying for a long time, but now I promise I'm going to tell the truth. No, right. uh, when's a liar no longer a liar? When I've seen and experienced him as a truther. When's a thief no longer a thief? When he stops stealing, gets a job, and is known as a generous person. So once they understand that concept, I'll say, okay, whatever that particular sin that they're struggling with, when is a coercively controlling husband who's used sexual coercion in his life, when is he no longer a sexually coercive husband? And that's when we start doing really hard work because then we've built a strategy for, for progressive sanctification that allows us to really identify what to put off and what to put on rather than just saying, I'm sorry. And that's really the distinction between a worldly sorrow and and just contrition for show or even sincere contrition that doesn't have an application and Psalm 51 for instance which is when David's confronted with the depth and depravity of his own sin right with Nathan's story and right. when he's confronted in 2 Samuel 12 we get Psalm 51 because there's a genuine heart shift right that happens and that's what we want to see. And so that's going to be played out over time. And so with a guy, the biggest indicators, he's willing to wait. He's not willful. So his questions to me are, you know, Chris, help me take the next step. Whether I get my family back or not, I want to be God's type of person. That's a winning statement as opposed to, we've been at this for eight weeks. When am I going to be, when am I going to move back in? That's a red flag. You've seen... Guys make the turn. Oh, yeah. Go from being abusers to living at peace, and their wives would say, this is completely different than the man I used to live with. Sure. I've seen it both to the extent of reconciliation, which I think is what a lot of people in, you know, visualize. I've also seen it um, in the degree at which you know, she filed for divorce, and the, the church supported her through the divorce. And he actually supported her through the divorce because he wouldn't want to be married to him either. Like, even when you get to that point of that repentance, those are times to rejoice too. Because you're like, okay, maybe maybe there'll be something in the future. But what we've done is rather than restoring people to ministry or restoring people to a marriage, we've restored people to Jesus. Once yeah. we restore them to Jesus, then those other things are possible. They may not be probable in some cases, but they're possible. So we're going to keep the main thing the main thing. How is his relationship with God? And then if that's square and straight, then we can say, okay, is there any place now for reconciliation in these earthly relationships? I'm grateful for Chris Moles taking time to help us think pastorally about this issue of domestic violence. Let me encourage you to check the show notes for information on Chris's website or the Men of Peace website that he oversees as well. Both of those websites have links to resources, books, other things that can help you in this area. And we don't necessarily, as pastors, need to be experts on what to do when we become aware of domestic violence. 
but we need to know where to turn, where to point people. We need a basic strategy in place, and that's something you should have in your toolkit. So again, go to the show notes for more information about Chris's new book, which is called Caring for Families Caught in Domestic Abuse, A Guide Toward Protection, Refuge, and Hope, and for links to other resources as well. There's also information about the Great Commission Collective in our show notes, or you can go to our website, gccollective.org, find out more about what we're all about, which is planting churches and strengthening leaders. Again, the website, gccollective.org. And of course, if you like this podcast, we want to encourage you to share this with other pastors or church planters you know. You can pass along the word about this particular episode or point them to the bounce We're now in our third season, so we have lots of episodes that you can go back and listen to. If you're new to The Bounce, check that out. And you can always like, subscribe, or leave comments. That helps us get the word out to more people. So we'd ask you to do that. Now, next time on The Bounce, we're going to talk about another epidemic in the local church, and that is the epidemic of pornography. Sam Black from Covenant Eyes will be joining us. He has just written a book called The Healing Church, What Churches Get Wrong About Pornography and How to Fix It. And I think we can all agree this is something we need to be alert to and we need to be on guard against. So we'll talk about that next time on The Bounce.